0: Well, here's where we're headed tonight. We dove last week into the book of James, a book that really connects with a lot of people because of its practicality. The whole book of James really doesn't have one theme. It really just touches on a lot of different things that touch our lives each and every day as we walk through life. And I think that's why it resonates with us as Christians But the other thing that I see in the book of James is that James is calling us to a radical faith, a radical Christianity. Because the kind of faith that he is talking about here is the kind of faith that God wants us to have in order to meet all of life's demands, no matter what life throws at us. And therefore, God wants to strengthen us in order that we might be strong in Him, in order to not only meet the demands of life from our perspective, but to also be a great example to others who are watching the way that we handle the circumstances of life and the trials of life. That's why James started off very radically by saying last week, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the reason why our attitude can be Such is because we learned last week that God is not using trials to discourage us, to cause defeat to come to our lives, or to destroy us in any way. That God uses trials in our life to strengthen us, to build into us a sustaining, staying power, uh, an endurance that that faces life triumphantly and resolutely, and no matter what we face, we're. Through, through God, we simply say, "Bring it on. God and I can handle this together, no matter what it is. Well, tonight we move from dealing with temptation or dealing with trials to dealing with temptation. And I just want to read our passage tonight as we begin. I want to begin reading in James chapter one, verse thirteen, and we're just going to cover verses thirteen through eighteen tonight of James chapter 1, dealing with temptation. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. All generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. By His sovereign plan, He gave us birth through the message of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of all He created." The first thing James tells us, the first principle that James gives us in dealing with temptation is found in verse 13, and it is taking personal responsibility. I have to take personal responsibility rather than making excuses or shifting the blame to someone else. That's why he starts, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Some of these phrases may sound familiar to you. I've used a few of them in the past. Things like, God, you expect too much from me. God, you've made things too difficult for me. God, you've not given me the same grace and power to resist temptation that you have given to others. God, you created me this way. I can't help myself. Not only do we make excuses and and try to shift the blame, but... Man wants to minimize his sin. That's why many times we give new names to sin rather than calling sin what it is. Lust becomes appreciation for physical beauty. Greed becomes business savvy. Stubbornness becomes principle. Pride becomes self-esteem. Worry becomes human nature. And ever since the beginning of time, Men and women have been unwilling to take responsibility for sin and for how we have dealt with the temptations of life. And we've tried to say it's God's fault or someone else's. In fact, keep your finger there in James and go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. In fact, we're going to go back there now and then we're going to go back there later. So if you have a bookmark, just go ahead and mark Genesis chapter 3. I want to pick it up in verse 8. This is after Adam and Eve have taken of the fruit which God forbid them to take. They've already eaten it. Their eyes have been open. And now the Bible says in verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. First thing though, isn't it great that we have a God that even when we willfully and clearly disobey him, he still seeks after us. He doesn't let us go. That's exactly what he was doing here. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now God knew. Where they were. The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And here it comes. The man said, The woman you gave me. It's her fault. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Adam did not take responsibility. He made excuses. He shifted the blame to someone else. Well, it doesn't stop there. The Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, What is this you have done? And the woman replied, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. You see, this problem of not taking personal responsibility... And making excuses for our sin and calling it by other names and trying to shift the blame has been part of the human existence ever since the fall of men back in Genesis chapter 3. The first thing all of us need to do to begin to see a turnaround in our life. To begin to see those old habits conquered and, and victory in areas where we have not seen victory before. is simply to begin by taking personal responsibility for my attitude and my actions. Because it is at that moment that God then can begin to work. If you go back to the book of James chapter 1 verse 13. James also says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Now, this phrase causes a lot of confusion. Because many say, okay, logically, James says God cannot be tempted by evil, and yet I know my Bible tells me that Jesus is God, and and my Bible tells me the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, so how do I... Get that to fit. The key is in James chapter 1, verse 13, notice he says God cannot be tempted by evil. He doesn't say God cannot be tempted at all or that God could not be tempted by Satan or that God could not be tempted by some other being. He simply says God cannot be tempted by evil. In other words, there was nothing in any temptation appeals to God. When Jesus was tempted, it's not that Satan couldn't try to tempt Jesus. But the Bible is clearly saying, as God, there is no insufficiency in Jesus Christ. There is no deficiency in Christ. There is no wanting of anything in Christ. He is totally sufficient in and of himself as God that there would be something dangled out there, some kind of carrot to whereby he goes, okay, I need that in order to be Happy, or I need that in order to to be more of what I want to be. He is all that he needs to be, always has been, and so there was nothing that Satan or any other being could ever tempt Jesus with in order to draw him out because he's totally sufficient in and of himself. That's what, and we're going to see that throughout our study tonight. That's really one of the things that makes temptation in our lives very powerful is when we do not believe that in Christ we have everything that we need and that we are complete in him, Colossians 2.10. Whenever we even have Christ and still feel like there's something lacking in my life, that's when temptation can have a power over us because then we believe there is something outside of even Christ that I need in order to make me happy or fulfilled or satisfied. Jesus never had that problem and that's why he could not be tempted by evil. For God himself tempts no one. See, God never is trying to trip you up. God is never trying to defeat you. God is never trying to cause you and I to stumble in any way. If God allows a trial into our life, it's only to strengthen us and to make us stronger as we saw last week and to give us that sustaining, staying power in our life that's actually going to benefit us. But God never tries to trip us up causes to stumble. It is not even in his nature as God to do so. But notice what verse 14 of James chapter 1 says. First of all, each one, meaning that temptation is a universal problem. Each one is tempted. Speaks to not only the universal nature of temptation, but the reality of temptation. Everyone is tempted. And temptation is not a sin. Again, going back to Jesus. Jesus never sinned. It wasn't a sin for Jesus to be tempted. The sin comes when you and I give in to the temptation. In fact, my personal belief is the the stronger we grow in Christ, the, the more we move forward in our relationship with Christ... The more our spiritual enemies and the more our flesh is going to try to work against us. I don't necessarily think that the Christian life gets easier. I think the trials and the temptations can really be ratcheted up, if you will, as we move on in Christ. But each step of the way, if we're growing and we're getting stronger, we can meet each of those greater temptations and greater trials because we are Jesus strong, as we talked about in 2 Timothy this summer. Each one is tempted, notice, when he is Lord and enticed. The word Lord is a hunting term. The word enticed is a fishing term. The word Lord in the original language means to bait a trap. The word enticed means to bait a hook. And so therefore it speaks here of the seductive nature of temptation. Obviously, you know, Satan knows most of us aren't going to go out there and put that hook in our mouth. But if I put a bait on it, just like we do with fish, and it looks good and the hook is hidden... And we can't really see the hook until we take a bite. Then we're more apt to give in to the temptation. And that's exactly what we see happening here. We've got to realize that in these temptations we're being baited. Either by a trap or by a hook. And how widely different does sin appear after it is committed from what it did before. Before that sin is committed, man, it looks really good. You don't see the negative consequences, the ramifications, all of that. It looks like this is what I've always wanted. I I need this. I deserve this. And then we take the bait. And just like that fish or that bear or whatever that, that takes the trap or takes the hook, there's a lot of pain involved on the other side of that. That's part of the reason why even in this context, though we talked about it last week, in the midst of trials, God wants us to ask Him for wisdom, which is that skill of being able to live life. We can also ask Him for wisdom as we go through life with these temptations that pop up. Because God's wisdom in verse 5 is going to give us that insight, that ability, that discernment that we need to see beyond the bait to see beyond the lore and to see the hook or the trap that's involved underneath of it all. And then you'll notice in verse 14, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Going back that the ultimate culprit, the ultimate one who's responsible In a sense, the one who builds and baits my own trap is me. Because those temptations would have no power over me. If in and of myself I felt complete and sufficient and that there wasn't anything lacking that I needed to grab a hold of to find some kind of satisfaction and fulfillment. So really, though Satan can dangle something out there, so, so a demonic force can dangle something out there, though my flesh can, so the world can dangle things out there, they cannot make me take the bait That comes from my own desires of wanting to have something that I feel I need in order to be happy. My own desires. In fact, keep your finger there in James. We're going to be turning to a lot of Scripture. Well, not a lot, but several. Go back to the Gospel of Mark. This is a watershed passage that Jesus gives us here in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7 and verse 18. And the reason why I say this is a watershed gospel is because the religious leaders of Israel's day, as we know, were all hung up on the externals. And, and it was all about their righteousness was measured by what kind of contact they had with external things. And if they touched a, a dirty this or whatever, they were defiled. And it was all about externals. And Jesus comes along and basically turns it all upside down and says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It has nothing to do with externals. It has to do with the human heart. Notice what Jesus says in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. He said to them, are you so foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. This means all foods are clean. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I could spend the next 35 minutes that we have talking about that in the context of the world in which we live. I will not. Can I just tell you that when people say, should I stay away from this? or what the, All foods are clean. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, let's move on. So go home and have that piece of pineapple upside-down cake, all right? Jesus has blessed it. Just don't have two pieces, all right? He said, what comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the human heart, come evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. I think he's covered it. All these evils come from within and defile a person. You see, from Jesus' point of view, the problem is the human heart. And so therefore, I not only have to, in dealing with temptation, take personal responsibility, I have to be willing to look at my own heart. And there's a remedy The remedy is, the Bible says, God can create in all of us a clean heart. And we just simply have to surrender our heart to God and let Him begin to work. And God can clean up our heart. Even if our heart is filthy dirty... The Bible teaches that the blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than any sin we've ever been in, forever, how long we've been in it. It doesn't matter how dirty, how defiled we think our heart is, the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to clean it all up. Amen. And all we have to do is look at our heart honestly, and then give our heart to Jesus and let him create in us a clean. Heart. Back then to James chapter 1. I want to look at three words in James 1.15 about dealing with temptation. The first word is desire, the second one is sin, and the third word is death. James is basically saying there's a process here. And once the process starts, it always leads to something else. First, he says, the process of this whole dealing with temptation and battling all this starts with my own desire. And I just want to say here tonight, listen, God created us with desires. God created us with passions. And God does not want Christians to be emotionless and passionless and have no desires. If that be true, I'm in trouble. God just simply wants our desires to be kept under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the difference. He wants us to have desires. He wants us to have passion, as we sang about, a passion for His name tonight. He wants us to to have all of that. He just wants us to keep it all under control by the power of the Holy Spirit. And really, this whole desire thing and the battle with it starts in the mind. It really does. It's all about what I Think about and what I allow my mind to dwell on. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may approve what is that good and excellent and perfect will of God for your life. Be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that is an ongoing process that we as Christians have to go through every day of our Christian life. We cannot allow the world, in the way the world says we should think, and the way the world thinks, to draw us into their mold and say, this is the way you have to think about these things. He says reject the mold that the world is trying to pour you and I into and how they're trying to determine how we are to think about things and let God transform our minds. And then if you turn over to Philippians from James, just back a few books to the book of Philippians, and I apologize if I didn't feel it was really necessary to look at some of these verses, I wouldn't have us turning there, but I just think some of these are too important to to miss. In the book of Philippians chapter 4, the whole chapter is really about enjoying the peace of God, the tranquility of mind that God wants all of us to enjoy. And there's different steps here. In fact, when I really struggled with anxiety and stress and panic attacks and all of that, Philippians chapter 4 was one of those passages I just continually went back to and allowed God to work and use in my life. And there's many different things. You know, pray instead of worrying about things and all of that. But then in verse 8, notice he ends this passage this way. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You see, God says, for the growing Christian, for the Christian who's living this radical faith, who wants to stand up to temptation, one of the things we've got to build into our lives is disciplined thinking. We've got to get rid of what we call stinking thinking. And we've got to push those those false things out of our mind, and we've got to replace them with the truth of God, and we've got to saturate our minds with the Bible, That's why the psalmist says, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It truly is a saturation of our mind. And it's not that those thoughts won't come in. It's just that we've got to learn to replace them more quickly and not dwell on them. Many times our struggle comes because we drown in our own thoughts. Thoughts that aren't true. Thoughts that aren't biblical. Thoughts that aren't Christ honoring. And we've got to learn to discipline our thinking. Can I just say, it's a process. It's not something that if you struggle with your thought life, you're going to go from point A to point Z overnight. It doesn't work that way. But God can begin to work on our thought life and on our mind and transform it so that, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I can learn to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. And that what I am thinking about, what I'm meditating on, what I'm dwelling on will honor Him and it will also give me a tranquility of mind. See, the Bible says in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar, has been a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And Satan is always lying to you and me. We also know we live in a world where we hear lies every day. Sometimes we even lie to ourselves. And what we have to learn to do is get rid of those lies and replace them with the truth of God. That's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth and it will be that truth that sets you free. Disciplined thinking. Then if we go back to James, also part of this desire is trying to control again our, our wants and separating our wants from our needs. And sometimes we say things like, I have to have this. Or I deserve this. And that's where the desire begins. You see, it begins in the mind with a desire. That desire is fueled by the fact that even though we have Christ, we still think that we need something else, that there's some kind of deficiency or insufficiency in us, there's something lacking in us, and that there's something out there in the world or someone else out there in the world other than Christ that can meet that deepest need of my soul that really only jesus can meet and so it starts in the mind with that desire that's why first timothy 6 6 says godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world it is certain we can carry nothing out of this world therefore since we have food and shelter let's be content but many christians we struggle with that really god food and shelter that's it God says, yeah, I, I would hope that my children, those who are, who are living that radical faith life, would get to a point where whatever circumstances they are in, that they are content. Not always striving. That's why Psalm 23.1 is a huge verse in the Bible. We look at that Psalm many different ways, but it starts out, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And yet many times in my life as a Christian, and many times as I talk to other Christians, it's all about what I want. Yeah, yeah, I've got the Lord. Yeah, but I want. Yeah, yeah, I know I've got Jesus in my life, but I deserve that. Or I've got Jesus in my life, and yeah, I'm on my way to heaven. My sins are forgiven, but I really want that. And if we're truly following our shepherd as one of his sheep, We will get to the point where we trust him and realize and acknowledge that as our good shepherd, he will never withhold anything good from our lives. And he will make sure that we lie down in green pastures and that we go by the still waters and that we have everything we need because the reputation of the shepherd is tied to the condition of the sheep. And if the sheep of God are somehow deficient in some way, it's not just a reflection on us. It is a reflection on our shepherd. And Jesus will not let that happen to one of his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In fact, Jesus even goes on to say, okay, let's say you don't cut temptation off at the desire level. Let's say Let's say it gets past the desire level, the the mind level, and it's become a part of our lives. How do we deal with it then? Well, he gives a radical remedy. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, he says, If your hand offends, you cut it off. If your eye offends, you pluck it out. And Jesus wasn't literally saying, you know, pop your eyeball out. He was simply saying that we sometimes have to deal very radically with sin. When it's entrenched in our lives or it's become a part of our lives, we just can't put a Band-Aid on it and expect it to go away. Sometimes it takes radical surgery. And sometimes that surgery is painful, but it gets out the, the growth. It gets out the stump. It gets out the core. And therefore, it's done feeding and fueling my temptation. Cancer is a terrible thing. My father died of cancer years ago. We've all been touched by it. And many times, you know, a doctor will say, hey, you, you have cancer, but we can operate and we can get it out. Now, none of us likes to go through surgery. But if we know that a surgeon can go in and, and can take that cancer out, yeah, that's, that's pretty radical, but that's going to give us back our life. It's going to give us back our health. And spiritually speaking, yeah, it it may be radical sometimes that we have to literally cut our hand off and pluck our eye out. And, And really what Jesus is saying is remove all those negative triggers in your life that fuel that desire. If you just simply know that this is something that fuels that, then get rid of it. Then I want to go on to sin. Let's talk about sin for a minute because we don't hear a lot about sin One of the things the Bible says about sin in the context of temptation is that sin is pleasureful for a season. You see, it's wrong to teach people that that sin doesn't have some kind of pleasure connected to it. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25 that sin is pleasureful for a season. That's part of what makes sin so attractive sometimes. That's why some people say, but it feels good. Yeah, it feels good for a while until it begins to take over your life, until it begins to show up the negative consequences and ramifications. You know, no, no drug addict thinks that these drugs are going to take over their life and totally become their life. They don't think that when they start out but eventually it just consumes their life. I didn't think when I started to worry and be anxious about things that my life would end up almost paralyzed by stress and anxiety. I didn't start it out that way. Sin is pleasureful for a season. So we've got to be careful that, again, we don't measure how something feels and try to say, well, that rationalizes it. I've heard people say that. all but this relationship just feels right. It just feels good. If it's not of God, if it's not of His Word, then it's wrong no matter how it feels. And we as Christians are not told to walk by our feelings. We are told to walk by faith. And again, it's not that God wants us to be feeling less or feeling nothing. He simply wants our feelings to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Another thing we learn about sin is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, verse 22, where the writer says that we are held by the cords of our own sin. We think we can manage sin. We think we can control this thing. And then pretty soon, it's like a boa constrictor that wraps around our lives and sucks the life out of us. And Psalm 119, verse 133 says, direct my steps by your word. Do not let any sin dominate me. Because God does not want His children to be dominated by sin, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here tonight and you're being dominated by sin, you and I just need to release that to the power of God. And we need to begin to see God bring victory in our life rather than defeat. There is nothing in your life or my life that's keeping us from being all that God created us to be and all that He wants us to be that His power cannot help us to overcome. A statement I heard a long time ago about sin, but it's very apt. It says this. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's the nature of sin. And then death. When we read the word death in verse 15, we automatically think of physical death. But sin doesn't always bring physical death. The essence of the word death in the Bible just means separation. It is literally the separation of the physical body from the soul. And when we die, the body is separated from the spiritual part or soul part of the human being. And that's really what death means. And that's why as you desire And then desire leads to sin. Sin will lead to death, meaning separation at its very essence. Because sin is going to separate me from my fellowship with God, even as a Christian. Sin is going to separate me from my brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin is going to separate me from people, friends, whatever. Because sin doesn't just affect me. It affects all those around me. I do not sin in a vacuum. I do not sin in a bubble. Therefore, sin brings separation. It destroys our life and usually affects those around us as well. But then we come to verse 16, where he begins to shift. And he says, now do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. As he enters in now to these verses, I think on the character of God. And the reason I think this is so important is because I believe that all sin has its origin from a false view of things. And really, I think it could be even going back to the fact that we have a false view of God. And what James is going to try to reinforce in verse 16, 17, and 18 is that God is good. Psalm 107 verse 1, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. This is a foundational truth that shapes our perspective toward God and his dealings with us in this life. And yet, if Even as a Christian, if I don't believe that God is good at his very character and at our relationship with each other, I then begin to believe what Satan wants me to believe, and that is that God is holding out on me. And that's what makes temptation so powerful. In fact, go back to the book of Genesis one more time to Genesis chapter 3. And let's look at the first part of that story in Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? Well, right there, see, he starts to begin to twist the word of God. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said, you must not eat from it and you must not touch it. Eh, wrong. God never said you couldn't touch it. Now she's tampering with the word of God or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. Now he just out and out challenges the word of God. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what's best for you. God is not good. God is holding out on you. Therefore, he says, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like divine beings who know good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The point I want to make is simply this. Again, going back to the very first fall of man. It all started with Satan was casting doubt on the character of God. God really doesn't have your best interests at heart, Eve. Adam, he's holding out on you. If you just eat of this, that's what's really going to bring you life. And it plunged the human race into sin. Back to the book of James then, chapter 1. I believe that when James begins turning away from talking about the process of temptation to verses 17 and 18, when he says, Do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. I look at it in the context he's saying, Don't allow your flesh, the world, or Satan, or anyone else to attack the fact that God is good. We've got to keep that truth within us because that's where we're going to be attacked. In fact, that's why he goes on in verse 17 to basically say, no one can outgive God. If we think that God is holding out of it on us, we just simply do not understand the character of God or what the Bible says about God. God is a generous giver. A generous giver. He is not somebody who holds back. When God blesses, he really blesses. When God gives, he really gives. And God gives, though, only, notice verse 17, only good, i.e., spiritually beneficial gifts. You see, God's not going to give one of his children something that's going to cause them to stumble into sin. God's not going to give his child something that's going to wreck their relationship with him as God. So sometimes, again, because our needs and what we think we need in order to be happy and stuff doesn't match up with God, then we just, human reasoning, concur, well, God's holding out on me. God really doesn't love me. God. God doesn't have my best interest at heart simply because he's not giving me what I think I need and we have to again go back to faith and trust that if God is choosing not to bestow that gift to us, it is because it is not spiritually beneficial to me. And I should get to the point as a growing, maturing Christian that the only thing I care about is what is spiritually beneficial to me. In fact, the gospel is the evidence of the goodness of God. We talk about the fact that the word gospel means good news. And it is. We share the good news with people who need to hear about the love of Jesus and how he died on the cross for our sins. But you think that was good for Jesus? No. But it was spiritually beneficial to you and I, and that's because he loved us so much that he was willing to leave the glories of heaven, assume an earthly body, allow those he created to crucify him for our spiritual benefit. That's the evidence of the goodness of God. And we've got to get to a point in our walk with God where we truly believe that God will never withhold anything that is truly good from my life. Don't have to answer that tonight, but do you really believe that? Do you really believe as a Christian that God will never withhold anything that is truly good from my life. All generous giving, James says, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. Light. You see in temptation, the bait is set, the trap is set, and there's deception there. There's darkness there. With God there is no darkness, there is no deception. What you see is what you get. He's not trying to trick anybody. He's not trying to deceive anybody. He's not trying to bait a trap. He's not baiting and switching anything. He's simply giving, and he's giving everything that is for our spiritual benefit. And James says God will never change. The end of verse 17. We never have to worry about God getting to a point where He begins to bait and switch or begins to give me something that's really not spiritually beneficial. I can go to bed tonight knowing that God has my best interests at heart. That I will never be able to outgive God. That God is a generous giver. He wants to give me only good things that will spiritually benefit me. But again, that goes back to the character of God. And it goes back to my concept of God. And that's why if my concept of God is a faulty concept, it's going to affect the kind of hold that temptation can have in my life. So quickly, as we're wrapping things up tonight, let me just review. The first thing is I need to take personal responsibility. That's the first thing I need to do in dealing with temptation. Second, I have to look at my own heart. And if my heart in any way needs cleaned up, I need to give my heart and surrender my heart because God can create a clean heart. I also need to evaluate my concept of God. Because all sin takes its origin from a false view of things. And if I have a false view of God, then that's going to affect the power of temptation in my life. That's again why I encourage people to read their Bible and study their Bible and get into Bible studies. Because Nowhere can we get a clearer picture of who God really is and what his character is than from the Bible. And therefore, the more I study the Bible, the more I really understand how good God is and the fact that he will not withhold anything that is spiritually beneficial from my life. Notice, in fact, as we close tonight in verse 18... That James continues his point on the goodness of God as he mentions the best gift of all. That is our new birth through the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have been given a new birth into the family of God. And that this was a plan from God. God didn't wait for us to reach out to Him. He reached out to us and gave us birth through the message of truth. That's important in this passage because again... Temptation gets a foothold in my life because of its falsehoods. And I believe that which is false. No, I've got to cling to the message of truth. It is what brought me to salvation. It's what brought me into a relationship with Christ. And it's what's going to continue to help me to navigate my life even after I'm a Christian. I've got to cling to the message of truth. You shall know the truth and the truth will set us free from all temptation... And everything that tries to wrap around our lives and suck the very life of God out of us. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.32, Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Paul's basically saying, if the greatest need of human beings is the need of a Savior the need of having our sins forgiven, the need of a relationship with God and being reconnected with God, and we believe that God met that greatest need of my life on the cross of Calvary and on Jesus' resurrection, then do I not think logically that God will meet any lesser need in my life that's truly a need? You see, the Bible argues from the greater to the lesser. The greatest need that you and I had as a human being was the need of a Savior. And God met that need. Therefore, there is no other need that will ever come into my life where I can say, well, that's greater than the need for Jesus. No, there will never be anything like that. And so God is simply saying, if God was willing and able to meet that need, then he can meet every other need in our life. We just need to look to him and trust him and realize that because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. At the very end of verse 18, notice our purpose as Christians. Our purpose is through the message of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits. The first fruits is an Old Testament term. It spoke about that which was set aside, consecrated to God as a means of thanking God. It wasn't a way of earning God's love. It wasn't a way of earning a relationship with God. It was simply a way of thanking God for all that He had done and for the blessings that He gave. And we as Christians, the Bible says, are to be first fruits. We're not to give God the leftovers of our life. We're not to give God that which is seconds. We are to be the very first fruits, giving our lives, as Romans 12, 1 says, back to God as a living sacrifice, thanking Him by our life and the way we live our life and by standing up to temptation and by Realizing that these trials are only there to strengthen us and taking us to a whole new level. That's what God wants us to be first fruits. And then notice our value. Our purpose is to be first fruits. Our value is notice, He says, you guys are first fruits of all that God created. You see, from God's standpoint, it's not that He doesn't value all that He created, but He's saying that you as human beings are of more value than anything else I created. You see, the Bible doesn't teach what what others teach in that, well, we're just all alike. You know, the plants, the animals, human beings, we're just all from the same muck, and we're all of equal value. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, in fact, Jesus says back in Matthew 6, he says, look, God even knows when a sparrow falls from a tree. So God values everything he ever created. But he turns to the human beings and he says, but you are of more value than them. Looking at the birds. And you and I have to come to realize just how valuable we are to God. Listen, again, God values all the animals he ever created. They're wonderful creations of God. God values his creation. In the book of Genesis, everything he created, he said, it's good. And it was. But you and I, are the only part of God's creation that Jesus Christ died to have a relationship with. That's what sets us apart from every other part of God's creation. No other part of God's creation can have a personal interaction with the personal God of the universe. Only you and I as human beings have that privilege. And James is calling us to live out that privilege. And to take advantage, if you will, of that privilege. As the first fruits of all that God created. First Corinthians 10.13 Listen to what this verse says. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Goes back to the character of God again. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 I have to believe in every temptation of life That God is giving me a way out. I just need to take it. I have to believe, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that in every temptation, say I don't shut off the temptation at the desire level. Say I allow that desire to cook in there a little bit. And then it gets to the point where I got a choice to make. Do I do it? Do I not do it? The Bible says God gives every believer in Christ a way out. A way to say either yes when I need to say yes or a way to say no when I need to say no. A way to step away. A way to step out. Maybe even like Joseph in Genesis 39, a way to run out. But God will make a way out of the temptation. We just need to take it. So here's how we deal with temptation. I have to take personal responsibility. I have to look at my own heart. I have to evaluate my concept of God. And I have to believe there is a way out. God wants you and I to stand up to temptation as the first fruits of Of all that he created. And to show ourselves and others. That there is no temptation. That is stronger than our God. There is nothing that can tempt me. That God and I cannot handle together. And God wants me to so fall in love with him. And get so close to him that there won't even be that lure of temptation outside because I will truly come to believe that if I have Jesus Christ in my life and he is in my heart, that there is nothing that this world or nothing that Satan could offer me or nothing that any other human being could ever offer me that could match the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the wonder of Jesus in my life. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for giving us clear principles in dealing with something, Lord, that we deal with on a daily basis. There's probably not a day that goes by that we as human beings don't have some kind of choices to make, some kind of temptation there, or maybe even some thoughts in our mind that we need to to check or replace or whatever. God, help us to take these truths we've shared tonight and Help us to begin to see all of us standing up to that temptation and not allowing sin to dominate our life, but allowing the Holy Spirit of God and the power of God to be the dominant force in our life. God, go with us from this place and bring us back next Tuesday once again to be refreshed in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great week.